So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. Last week, we began our walk through the book of Hebrews, right, the letter to the Hebrews. And the first few verses, we began to see that God had spoken and that God has spoken particularly through His Son, Jesus Christ. We talked about how God has graciously chosen to reveal Himself to us and how important it is to recognize Jesus for who He is. Jesus is God, and Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Word and the completion of the Word. Jesus is the final Word. John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the book of Hebrews is a letter to Jewish Christians that utilizes the Old Testament, to interpret the person and work of Christ. And it utilizes the person and work of Christ to help us understand our reading of the Old Testament. I'll say that again because this is where we begin to look at the book of Hebrews and what it offers to us as Christians. The book of Hebrews is a letter to Jewish Christians that utilizes the Old Testament to interpret the person and work of Jesus Christ And it utilizes the person and work of Christ to help us understand our reading of the Old Testament. It works both ways, and that's the beauty of this book and one of the reasons why I love it so much and wanted for us, as we began this new chapter together, to have in our minds the idea that we need to understand not just the New Testament, but how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and how the Old Testament works to help us understand what it is that Jesus has done for us. And this is what we're going to look at today as we look through the rest of chapter 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 1, and I want you to notice all the quotations from the Old Testament that are present here in chapter 1. We're going to walk through these verses, and mainly verses 3 through 14, and we'll continue to see how the author of this letter begins by giving us a frame, a border inside which the rest of the book will fill in the details of exactly what it has meant for Jesus to leave heaven and come in the flesh and live, and die, and be raised, and ascend to the right hand of God. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter, just starting in verse 1. So Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers flames of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, how do we know how to inherit salvation, right? How we just ended there at the end of chapter 1. How do we know how to inherit salvation? Who inherits salvation? If the angels were involved in proclaiming this message of salvation, what exactly was this message of salvation? Well, let's start back in verse 3 of our text and pick up a bit where we left off last week. So look back at verse 3. Says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, we're talking about Christ. And catch this here, this is where we're going to pick it up. After making purification for sins, this is the basic message of the gospel. Jesus has made purification for sins. We as sinners are made clean and restored to a right relationship with God only through Jesus Christ. To show that Jesus had the authority and the power to be able to accomplish this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus took his rightful place of authority at the right hand of God. You ever heard the expression, that's my right hand man? I guess I should point this way if it's the right hand man. That's my right hand man. <laughs> it kind of makes more sense. Right, you ever heard that expression? You know, maybe, you know, in shows or a movie or you've just heard someone say it. Maybe when someone's talking about a friend or an, an employer is talking about an employee that they can trust, that they're, they're trying to convey the idea that this other guy is someone that they can depend on, that they can trust, that they can expect to get the job done and lean on no matter the circumstance. This is probably a bit of where they get that from. This is my right-hand man. That guy has the opportunity and obligation to accomplish and perform the duties he's given. Right? That's my boy. You can count on him. I can trust him, and if, and if you trust me, you can trust him. So the question for us is, do you trust God? Because if you trust God, then in every capacity, you should trust Christ. And so now on this topic of trusting God, I want to take a minute and speak a little bit to some misconceptions we have that we may have about God. For many of us, when we read the Old Testament... We assume that when it speaks about God, it is speaking about God the Father. And generally speaking, this is the default mode that many of us have. And it is the default that the Jews, the Hebrews, would have had. What begins to happen here in Hebrews 1 is a clear and undeniable clarification of who Jesus is in relationship to God the Father. Again, when we talked about this a bit last week, we saw that. And it continues on in the rest of chapter 1. But what I want us to think about this morning for a minute is whether or not we have the right understanding of the Old Testament itself. Since the beginning of the church, almost 2,000 years ago, who Jesus is and what he has done has been a source of confusion and heresy and misunderstanding for many people. Part of the reason for this is because who God the Father is and what he has done himself has been misunderstood. The Old Testament is difficult. And here are two particular things that I think are often misunderstood about God, about God the Father, and the Old Testament. Number one is, what is the relationship between the salvation of the person, the faith of a person, and the works of a person? Right? The relationship between the salvation of a person, 
the faith of a person, and the works of a person. Faith, salvation, works. How do these three things relate to one another? So let me begin this first misconception by asking you a question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Testament? If you have a pen, scribble your answer down real fast, maybe, you know, in, in your bulletin or on a piece of paper. Just, you know, or, or if not, just gather a quick answer in your mind. Maybe a word, maybe a phrase, maybe a sentence. Just think about it for a second. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Now, if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, you likely have one of two answers. And the entire reason I'm pointing this out is because probably up until I was 19 or 20, I, for the most part, had this idea wrong in my own mind. Most people will basically say that that people in the Old Testament were saved either, one, through their obedience to the law, or good works, really, or two, through faith. They were either saved through their good works, through their obedience to the law, or through faith. Those are mainly the two answers that are going to be given to the question, how were people in the Old Testament saved? And if you want the true answer, you can look at Romans chapter 4. And so I'd encourage you this afternoon to look at Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5. We don't have time to look at those today. But basically, I'll go ahead and give you the answer so you don't have to be wondering all morning what is the right answer in case you're thinking, man, maybe I have the wrong answer. And maybe you do have the wrong answer. Again, as I had the wrong answer for much of my own life, having grown up in church. The answer is that God has always provided salvation by His grace through faith. Since the beginning of creation, people have been given the opportunity to be saved by God's grace through faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. This applies now, and it applied to people in the Old Testament. We are not saved by works. I did not understand this truth for quite some time, and it's hard to overcome this because you want to be able to do something to earn your way into a right relationship with God or to make God pleased with you. But the fact of the matter is, it neither happened back then nor now in the Old, Test- in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or in our church age now. Never was it that you were saved by what you did. Never. We are not saved by works. People in the Old Testament were saved through faith in God's promise of salvation. And people in the New Testament, people now, are saved through faith in God's accomplishment of salvation. People in the Old Testament were saved through God's promise of salvation because of their faith in that, their belief in that. They believed God. That's what you'll find in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is how Abraham was justified. He believed God. He believed the promises that God spoke to him. And we now, we are able to look back. Abraham had to look forward. He couldn't see the whole picture, but now we have the whole picture. We have his word, and it tells us about Jesus Christ. And we know his name. We know his works. We know who he is. And so they had to look forward to a promise, and we look back at the fulfillment of that promise, how God accomplished that promise. There is one event in history that saves all of those who have believed, and all of those who will believe. And that event was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, His perfect life, 
His substitutionary sacrifice, His bodily resurrection to make purification for the sins of all those who did believe and all those who would believe in their need for a Savior. So when we talk about our misunderstanding oftentimes of the Old Testament, it can easily begin with the false view of salvation history. This false view of salvation history often lends itself to our second misconception about the Old Testament. And the second misunderstanding is the relationship between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Basically, the question is, for you to consider even just now, or have you ever thought this before, have you heard this, has God changed? Has God changed? Has God turned from being a God of wrath in the Old Testament into a God of love in the New Testament? The emphatic answer is no, He has not changed. There's no difference in the character of God between the Old and New Testaments. He's the same God in both parts of the story. Now, you've probably heard, or maybe even believe right now what you've heard, when people point to all the acts of God and stories in the Old Testament about death and destruction and war and judgment, and they say that God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but now in Christ, He's a God of love, and He looks like a dude with long hair, and you know He's like, hey man, just love your neighbor and stuff. Um, Haven't you heard that before? I mean, isn't that the popular view that you see, that you hear people say? They overlook any grace in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. They overlook the grace that is present in the Old Testament. And they overlook any judgment that is there in the New Testament. It's as if they speak about God having gone soft in his old age. Right? You heard that before? You know, that, that. That old woman, she went soft in her old age. That old man, you know, he started having grandchildren and now he's soft in his old age, you know. Found some soft side of his heart. You know, Scrooge turned in, became soft. Really what happens is we'll often have not just a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, but also an incomplete view of the New Testament as well. Last week, we looked at how God spoke in the Old Testament at many times and in many ways to the fathers by the prophets, which we noted in and of itself was a grace. He didn't have to reveal himself, but he did. And so when God talks about himself in the Old Testament, he's gracious and merciful. Again, as we call it here at the Vine Church, Mercious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is said over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament itself, throughout the Old Testament itself. And it's said by men who experienced great hardships and endured much suffering. They believed that God was who He said He was because He did what He said He would do, and He did it in their midst. They could see that God fulfilled the promises that He had made. They couldn't see God fulfill all of the promises that He made because some of those weren't fulfilled until Christ, and they weren't able to see Christ fully like we are now. But they saw God work. God spoke, and then God worked. It's interesting, if you look at the Exodus, you look at Moses and Aaron going before Pharaoh, God speaks, but God hasn't actually acted yet. God speaks And then he actually does it. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And this is going to happen if you don't. And then it happens. God speaks and things happen. God was active. He spoke because he was at work. 
and he was fulfilling the plans and purposes he had for creation. So how does God get such a bad rap then? Because our definition of innocence is profusely skewed. Let me say it again. How does God get a bad rap? He gets a bad rap because our own definition of innocence is profusely skewed. We believe that all humans, Christ excluded, that all humans are by birth and by choice sinners. We are sinners. By nature of our birth and by the fact of our choices, we are sinners. This sin brings with it a judgment, and this judgment is death, both physical and spiritual. We call this judgment the wrath of God, and this is where many people have an issue. They don't think they deserve the wrath of God. They don't think other people deserve the wrath of God. So anytime God judges people, and He judges not just other nations, but especially Israel itself, people read this and they hear this and they think that God is not loving, that He's not extending grace, that He's not merciful, that He's quick to anger. Just look at the book of Revelation and and witness how Jesus will come again, and He's going to come again to judge the world. That's in the New Testament. Jesus is going to judge. There is a judgment that is coming. It is appointed unto a man once to die, and then the judgment. I just heard that yesterday at a funeral. We're going to die, and there's going to be judgment. God judges in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God brings His wrath upon people throughout history past, in the present, and will continue to in the future. And now look, I don't have to continue to stand up here and defend God's Word to try and defend God's word. I'll I'll let his word speak for itself. Because when read and understood correctly, when read and understood properly, we see that God has not changed. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He was the same 6,000 years ago as he was 2,000 years ago, as he is today, as he will be tomorrow, as he will be forever. So we must approach, when we start looking at this letter to the Hebrews, we have to begin understanding and approaching it with a common goal and framework from the beginning. We're putting ourselves squarely in the middle of the story and asking God to open our eyes to the beauty of this revelation that He has given to us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So as we again look back at our text this morning and look at verse 4, Look at Christ in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Not only is Jesus better than the prophets, which we sort of mentioned last week, he's better than the angels. Now, I'm not sure how the audience of this letter originally understood the place of angels. I'm not sure where they were coming from and how they understood angels. But we can gather a proper understanding of the role and the place of angels in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. All God's angels are meant to worship Christ. Read verse 7, where it says, Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels exist to worship Christ and to do the bidding of God. They are magnificent creatures, awe-inspiring and frightening, supernatural beings that live in the heavenly realm, visible and in- invisible. Let's say in- invisible, invisible. We know that they were involved in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. 
Just look at Galatians, the later half of Galatians chapter 3. But the main reason, it seems, for the contrast that we're given here in our text between the angels and Jesus is so that the audience can understand, so that we can understand that Jesus has a special and specific place when it comes to the revelation of God. He is the final and full revelation of God. And we can know this because the Old Testament points to this. Prophets were important. Angels were important. But when it comes down to it, the whole point, the whole story, it was all going to come to Christ. And who is Christ? What name has He been given, as it alludes to in verse 4? Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who is Christ? What name has He been given? Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to Me a Son. Jesus is God's Son. He has been given the name Son. He is not just a servant, but He is a Son. And now, in case you're still skeptical of Jesus actually being God and being God's Son, look at the relationship between the Father and the Son in verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, He says, in verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So did you catch that? This is a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 45. Follow it. The psalmist is talking to God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's talking to God. Then look down at verse 9 when the psalmist says, Therefore God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Therefore, God, your God. So did you see it? The psalmist is talking to God, and then he described God's God. So either we have some sort of hierarchy of gods, or there is a relationship between the Father and the Son where they are both God. Therefore, God, your God. The psalm describes some person who is God and also has some relational distinction with God. The deity of Christ is not just a New Testament idea. The deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, is originally found in the Old Testament and for us here in Hebrews chapter 1, clearly explained in the New Testament. Jesus claimed to be God. The New Testament writers claimed that Jesus was God. And the question for us is whether we believe this to be true. If Jesus was God, then there's a claim put on our lives to either submit ourselves to Him and to trust the work He has done on our behalf, or to continue trusting in our own selves. In this life, are you depending on yourself? For a right relationship with God, are you depending on your own works? Do you believe that God is who He says He is and that Christ is who He says He is? His throne is forever and ever. Jesus has been given a name which is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is God's Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. 
They are both God. As we see here the mention of angels in Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's important for us to recognize that we have to stop depending on angels or depending on circumstances to change. How often do you see it in our culture or in your own life, maybe in the life of of people that you know, where, where they're expecting God to do something, but they're expecting Him, they're not really expecting Him to do it, they're expecting something else to accomplish this change. They're expecting angels to come and do a miracle in their midst. And I remember growing up, you know, there was that show Touched by an Angel. Oh, and how amazing and wonderful that show was. I never really watched it, so I have no idea what it was really like. But there was a fascination with angels. And even now, you've, you continue to have shows with some interesting characters uh, that I don't watch still on cable shows that have God painted in a really horrible light, but the whole idea is about the angels and how the angels do God's bidding because God can't do it himself. Then you get this idea that God is up there and he needs help. That that God can't handle all of the issues that we have. That God hasn't spoken into your situation. That God isn't active in this world. We get this idea from our culture and from our own hearts that we can't trust God. That God isn't the one doing these works. That God isn't the one who has done the work for us. Stop depending on angels to save the day for you. Stop trying to be like other figures in the Bible. They couldn't save themselves and they aren't going to save you. Jesus Jesus died the death that you deserved so that you could have life. Jesus died the death that I deserved so that I could have life. And this life that He offers to you is available to you now. You're not going to go to heaven because you're a good person or because you've done some good stuff. You'll not become an angel when you die. Stop depending on guardian angels to protect you or or to deliver you out of difficult situations. When you do that, you risk diminishing the role and the person of Jesus Christ. And when you diminish Jesus Christ, you risk losing and living in the good news of salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who has offered you deliverance from death to life. Everything we need is found in Christ. God may still send angels, but are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, as he says in verse 14? Trust Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Realize that God has used people in the past, that God has used His creation in the past, which includes angels, to bring His word to us, to reveal Himself to us. But the fact of the matter is, the point was to reveal God to us. Not to say, look at how wonderful these creatures are. Not for us to say, I'm depending on God's creation, but instead... To hear His Word, to to come into contact with the truth that God is who He says He is, and that He does care about you, that He does care about me, and that He has done something to show that He cares for you and for me. We exist 
as a church to proclaim this message, to connect people to Christ, to connect people in Christ, so that we might build each other up to send each other out as a community on mission. With that proclamation, we build relationships intentionally centered on Christ so that disciples will be made and God will be glorified. And so you have the opportunity this morning, this week, as we continue to meet together, to join in on that work. And it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter how much you know or how much you know that you don't know. There are a lot of questions that we have and a lot of misunderstandings that we can have about the Old Testament, even about Christ Himself in the New Testament. The Bible is a thick book. It's a long book. It has a lot of different stories, a lot of different events, a lot of different things that have taken place, and we can become easily distracted by some of the things that we read in there. But if Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us anything, my prayer and my hope, and I think the author's intention of Hebrews, was that he wanted to begin this letter by getting all of us to look past all of those things and notice that it was all about Jesus Christ. It was all about Him. It was all always going to be about Him. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who saved the world. And He's the one who now is seated at the right hand of God on high in heaven, having sat down because He finished His work, having the authority to be able to say, I did this for my people. I did this work because you couldn't do the work. And I mean, really, we could just continue moving right into chapter 2. You know, go figure. I mean, it's a letter, so it's meant to be read consecutively. Right? You know, don't neglect such a great salvation. This message that we have been given, we can be distracted by all sorts of things. We have a temptation in our minds. I have a temptation in my mind and heart to not understand the truth that has been revealed to me, the truth that should be obvious. But as we catch glimpses, as this author quotes from the Old Testament and explains some things in the Old Testament, as he gives us a picture of Christ and helps us to understand Christ more by looking at the work He did and how that compares and relates to the Old Testament, I pray that we would not be distracted. My hope is that we would see Christ clearly for who He is and the work that He has done. That we could never be that person and that we could never do those works. And so I'm continuing to look forward to our time together looking at the book of Hebrews as we see more and more of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. And I pray once again that you would open our eyes to see and ears to hear. Not just some good truths not just some fantastic stories, 
put that first and foremost spilling over in the pages of your word, we would see Jesus Christ. He is the only one who could accomplish what we needed to be accomplished. And he did this before we ever even came into existence. He he did this while we were yet still sinners. He died for us. And he was raised from the dead to show that he had the power and the authority to be able to pay the penalty of that sin that we have, of the sins that we have committed, of our natural state of having fallen away from you. Help us to live in light of the truth that Jesus Christ has come to give us life and to give us life eternal. And that this life starts now. That we don't have to wait for heaven to enjoy all of the benefits and the rewards of knowing you, of being in a right relationship with you. But help us, help us, God, to right now fully understand this message and to live in this message. It's something that only you can do. And so we ask that you would do it through the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.